we all wake up and we start our day like normal and in an instant someone makes a decision that changes someone's life and that's how they end up in my ICU. Carrie Neelis is a nurse manager in the Trauma Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Ben Top Hospital. It's a level one trauma center, meaning it can handle any type of crisis at any time of day or night. I feel like my, my view on life was impacted very early in my nursing career doing trauma. Is there a particular story from your early time in trauma that said, sort of taught you about the fragility of life? Yeah, there's one. Um, the first patient I lost, um, I was training in New Orleans. I was still in orientation and I was working nights. So they bring this patient in and he was uh, 17 years old. Um, he was being driven in from about an hour away and I was good. I was working. I was doing what I needed to do. And then his mom and dad, and I believe it was his sister came in and they started talking to me about him and he had just graduated high school that night. He was at a party and he was driving his friends home and he had dropped his last friend off and was heading home. And there was another gentleman um, who was texting and driving and was drunk and hit him head on. Um, and this kid was supposed to be leaving for the military in a couple days, um, and he did not make it. Um, by the time he got to us, his head bleed was so significant, there wasn't anything that we could do. Um, I found out later that his family made the decision to donate his organs, and he saved an additional seven lives with his organ donation. Um, but that really did affect me. Um, I was off of work for several days after that, and I stayed home, kind of locked myself in the house, um, what I've learned um, in my job is there are a lot of people in the world who have such little regard for life. So the fact that I get to be part of a team, that we work so hard to make sure that people get those second chances, um, makes me very proud. I must leave you with a somewhat jaundiced view of human nature, uh, if I could put it that way. Yeah, um, you, nothing surprises me. You know, just when you think you've seen it all, something comes through the door. You know, I took care of a man who got bit in the neck by a horse. Not really sure how that happens, but it did. <laughs> okay. right. So uh, he survived? Yes. Yeah. And he's doing well. I've seen him since. So, right. yes. That's good. All mm -hmm. right. And the horse? I don't know about the horse. <laughs> <laughs> right. There must be trauma also for the people who work there. Uh, how do you get through the day? Um, how do you sort of deal with the sort of physical and sometimes emotional horrors you must mm -hmm. see? I'm, again, very fortunate to work with a team of people that we all love what we do. So at the end of the day, no matter what the outcome is, when I look at that family member or I come home and I lay my head down and I think or I tell them, you know, we've done everything that we can do. I physically have exhausted myself mentally, physically and emotionally to try to save their family member. When I say we did everything, I know in my heart that we did. Terry's job has great purpose and is part of her personal identity. But even at age 39, that doesn't stop her from dreaming about her future retirement. Carrie's parents recently retired, and she's taking notes. And is that for them uh, the ideal of retirement is um, retiring as early as you can and enjoying life? What do, what do they do? Is that not the goal for everyone? No, definitely not. <laughs> is it the goal for you? Absolutely. I want to retire and not have to work as soon as possible. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, the Century Lives, the Retirement Ladder, I'm Ken Stern. 
We're in Houston to talk about the new retirement with people who work within the sprawling public health system known as Harris Health. We're here to discover their hopes, their fears, and how they're preparing for retirement that could last five years or 35. We discover a few things along the way, starting with the notion that you can't understand people's goal for retirement until you understand those people. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. And speaking of taking action, helping people take more control over their money is why Gene Chatsky started the Her Money podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, the Her Money podcast can help you get there. Subscribe to Her Money with Gene Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. Carrie is a first-time homeowner. We drive out to meet her at her brand new house in Pasadena, Texas, a suburb east of Houston. The home isn't just new to Carrie, it's in a development that is still under construction. As we pull into her driveway, a crew works on the partially built house next door. Carrie greets us wearing a long sleeve shirt that says, Trauma Surgical ICU Nurse. Come Hi, Carrie. In. I'm Ken. Ken, Carrie. Nice hey, to Carrie, meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm still getting settled. Please excuse the disorganization and lack of stuff. When did you move in? About a month ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. it's only been a couple weeks. Well, congratulations. Is this your first home? It is. Oh, yes. Right. And yeah. how is home ownership after one month? <sighs> expensive. <laughs> in fact, home ownership is so expensive that the average age of home buyers has dramatically increased. When Carrie was born in 1984, the average age of a person purchasing their first home was 29. Today, it's 35. We sit on the couch in her open-concept living room, bare with the exception of an enormous TV still in its box, waiting to be hung on the wall. Uh, are you um, now having been a homeowner for a month? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about it? Every day that I'm here, I'm a little bit more excited and more excited. You know, there was the feeling of panic initially, You know, um, can I afford it? You know, even though I know I can, can I afford it? (laughs) Um, And so, but every day that I'm here, I get more excited about it. You know, just getting more settled and knowing that I don't have to go anywhere anytime soon and it's mine. Do you think about uh, this house in in sort of building equity for retirement? Do you even think about those questions? Um, I do. I think the equity that I build in this home I think of it more in a sense of the home that I'm going to purchase when I leave this home, more so than retirement. Um, My parents have both been very vocal all my years about retirement, plan for retirement, plan for retirement. My dad's favorite slogan is you don't fail to plan, you plan to fail. So, (laughs) so I'm curious why your, why your dad is so interested in retirement. Mm -hmm. My dad was very fortunate. Um, he retired early. He was 57 when he retired. So um, my parents planned financially very well. And I think it's just one of those things where my parents have always enjoyed life and they want to enjoy life to its fullest. They don't want to work until they die. Carrie's the middle of three daughters in a tight-knit family. Her family is a big influence and her parents are models for how to live her life and prepare for her retirement. One of my core memories as a child is, you know, once biweekly watching my mom pull out the old school calculator and all the bills and sit down at the kitchen table. And it was 
just stacks and stacks of papers and bills and her paying bills. Um, and so for me, that was how you pay bills, you know? And I think my mom handled the finances in the home um, and she was very good with the finances. I would say for the fact that they've been able to retire and now be debt free. And I look at the things that they have, you know, they have a nice home that they've built once again. Um, they have nice toys that they can enjoy their life and their retirement. Um, they take off and travel you know, when they feel like it. And I think that that's amazing. Like, that's what I want. I want to just be able to pack my bag and say, you know what, I'm going to go away for a couple of weeks and just do it. So uh, um, if that's your ideal, because mm -hmm. yeah. a lot of people in their 30s yes. uh, uh, don't think a lot about retirement, uh, but it sounds like you have been conditioned to think about those things. Yeah, early. I think conditioned is a good word. Um, I don't want to be in a position where, you know, I'm 70 years old and I have to work. Um, I'm very fortunate that I do love my job. Um, I love what I do. So I do think that if retirement were to come early for me, I probably in some capacity would continue to be a nurse in some ways. Um, but just to have that freedom to not be tied to a job and the grind of, you know, Monday through Friday or whatever, um, and be able to pick up and go and do what you want to do when you want to do it. I think that for me, that's life, right? At some point you have to be able to enjoy enjoy it more so than just Saturday and Sunday. How do you think about saving for retirement? Um, what's your, what's the Carrie Neelis plan? I don't really have one if I'm being completely honest. My mom will tell you that I'm, I'm very tight with my money to begin with. Um, so again, just saving as much as I can. Um, I do have a little bit of debt that I've been working to pay off now for several years. And I've just now gotten to a place where I feel comfortable starting to invest money. It's not surprising that Carrie is debt. She went to college twice, first to get a degree, and then she went back for nursing school. And almost half of Carrie's fellow millennials have student loan debt. My parents have a very good financial advisor, um, and his daughter is also in the business, and so she's taken me on as a client. So, you know, I have a little bit of money that I've invested, and I was very happy to hear her and her dad tell me that they felt like I was in a really good spot and so to speak ahead of the curve as well. Um, Cause I don't feel like I am. I feel like I'm very much behind the curve when it comes to things like that. In fact, nearly three quarters of millennials feel that financially they're starting further behind and they're not wrong. Older millennials like Carrie graduated around the great recession, causing their financial growth to stagnate for over a decade. Then the COVID-19 pandemic delivered millennials their second recession, even before they turned 40. I don't feel like I'm doing well, but then I also think about, you know, I am single. So everything I have, I have bought, you know, there's not a second income that's supporting my bills or this home or, you know, my car and things like that. So in that sense, I do feel very proud because the things that I do have, I have purchased and I have worked hard to make that happen for myself. So your parents still young, yes, right? Yes. Uh, can you picture them being a little bit older mm -hmm. and how that in retirement might change them? I think for them, they're going to go until they physically can't, until both of them physically can't. I think if one can and the other can't, the one's throwing the other one in and they're going anyways, they're going to continue to travel until they can't anymore. And then they're very fortunate. The home that they've built is very beautiful. Um, and so I think that just them sitting on their patio, you know, rocking away, enjoying their pool and, you know, enjoying what's left of life for them at that point, you know, is what they look forward to. Do you think you'll have a, as good a shot as a, at, at that retirement as your parents did? No, I don't. I think um, the cost of living is rising very quickly. 
Um, and I think that, you know, the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. And I think also, you know, with that, you know, the cost of homes is more expensive. Everything is just more expensive. Food is more expensive. Gas is more expensive. Um, and our income is not rising as quickly to match the cost, rise of the cost of living. Millennials have experienced slower economic growth than any other generation in U.S. history. And this sour economic situation has shaped Carrie's view of her prospects for retirement. I don't think that I will have as good of a shot as my parents did. But I'm just going to keep working and hope for the best. <laughs> I'll just keep praying and saying what my dad says and just like, you know, go to work. He's like, you have to pay taxes so I can be retired. But, you know, somebody behind me has got to pay taxes. So I'll just hope and pray that they do so then I can retire one day. So Carrie keeps working and we make plans to meet her at the hospital the next day. The hospital is very busy right now. Wear comfy shoes. Hi, welcome back. We meet at Carrie's office across the hall from the trauma surgical ICU. In full disclosure, it's been very busy the last few days, so yeah. I don't know what we're going to get ourselves into right now. It's been quiet, so to speak, okay. for now, but we'll see what happens. We like excitement, so. Yeah, well, we came to the right place. <laughs> um, I'm going to head out to the unit. I've just been kind of working on some paperwork stuff, and then I do round regularly on the unit if there is an event. We'll be out there helping. So. An event, you mean something bad happens? Yeah, yeah. or good. Okay. Mostly good bad. <laughs> so uh, what's, what are the characteristics of patients in this, in this ICU? So we do anything and everything. So there's no limitation on what we do here. We also, on this unit, take care of post-surgical patients who need ICU level of care. This is also where our um, cardiothoracic patients come, so our fresh open hearts. Um, car accidents, gunshot wounds, um, perved bowels, you know, and they become septic, they'll come here. Spine, spine cases. And so they spend a, um, typically a few days here and then they are moved to a lower level of oversight yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and then they may spend longer, much longer in the hospital. Yes, or, yeah. yes. Um, so we don't really have a typical length of stay in our ICU. It's really just patient dependent. Um, we have patients who come for one or two days in our ICU, and then we've seen up to nine months. So it really just depends on what they're here for. Should we take a look? Yeah, let's yeah. go. All right. The sounds of our ICU tend to be a little overwhelming sometimes. Um, like I said, we do have a lot of patients right now, um, and it is an open unit. The ICU has 30 beds, and today it houses 25 patients. All of the beds face the center of a long rectangular room filled with medical equipment. Curtains can be pulled around the beds, but for the most part, the patients are out in the open. A group of doctors and residents gather near one patient, making their morning rounds. They block our path, so we steer around them. Yeah, so we can pop over this way. On the other side of the room, Carrie notices some commotion. A group of nurses is tending to a new patient. Carrie rushes over, ready to lend a hand. Okay, the card too? No, 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 no. Sorry, new admission. <laughs> He's the ICU's 26th patient. So what happens when a new uh, new patient comes in like this? Um, lots what, of hands happening? on deck. Yeah, lots of hands on deck. Usually our charge nurse is there to help um, admit the patient, stabilize the patient, um, get orders, make sure that um, the patient is adequately and safely taken care of. What we do here is a team sport, so to speak. It can't be done by one person. So um, other nurses who are not busy, who may be able to come over and help, will also come over and help. And do you know what's brought this patient in? I don't, not at the right. moment. It looks like he just got here, so. 
And what's that uh, big hose that they're about to use? That's... Um, that is what's called a bear hugger. It uh, has a blanket that hooks up to it that warms, it's ambient warmth that goes over the patient to help warm the patient if their body temperature is too low. Oh. And you could just what what they're doing with this patient over here? Because there's tons of lines going into this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of when they come in is getting them clean, right? So we can do our full assessment, make sure that we're not missing anything that might change our plan of care for the patient. Um, they're also starting uh, medications. So he's intubated. So part of what we do when they're intubated is making sure that they stay comfortable, right? So having a tube down your throat is not ideal for anyone. So we want to make sure that they're comfortable. So a lot of times we'll start um, fentanyl and some sort of um, sedative um, to keep them comfortable with the tube. And then um, it looks like he's on pressors, and that's to help keep the blood pressure up so the patient has adequate perfusion to all the vital organs. Um, and then his body temp is pretty low, so that's why they're putting the bear hugger on. They'll get a warm gown, warm blankets, um, and try to make sure that his body temperature comes up. Um, it looks like he's got chest tubes on the left side. Um, so whatever brought him here, he had a lung that was collapsed. And then he's got a Foley um, for urine output, adequate urine output. And it looks like he does have a central line, which is just a big line that goes into the neck um, for your heavy hitting drugs. So I just want to interject. I mean, you see this a lot, so yes. you're pretty calm about it. this. is pretty dramatic. I mean, what's going on there? I, I can imagine, yes, that it yeah. would be, yes. And definitely for the patient, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of one of those things. I don't want to make it seem that it's not, um, but this is what we do every day. You know, everybody's got their day-to-day -day job, and while for me some other people's jobs may be traumatic, you know, this yeah. is what we do. Um, and so, yeah. But we do understand the ramifications when people walk in, either as patients or family members, what, what this looks like and how it can feel for them. Yeah. Very overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is another day on another day on the ICU. Yes. The trauma yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So we'll walk this way. Okay. We continue chatting in the conference room. Your work here is so mm -hmm. purposeful and meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, do you worry about being in retirement and not having that same? Yes. Same. Yeah. Yes, I do get such a strong sense of purpose um, from the work that I do. Um, and I do worry about that, like what that will look like when I stop working. Um, but I'm hoping that over the years between now and when I do stop working, I'll find a meaning meaningful purpose in something else, whether it's a hobby or simply just leaving the work that I've done to someone else, you know. And I also get a lot of purpose in knowing that the lives that I've helped save and even those that I didn't, I had meaningful impacts on those families. And so that gives me purpose too, to know that the care that I've already provided um, has had some impact on families and patients. And, and is that your, I'm sort of curious what your biggest fear about the, about retirement would be, is it? Not having enough money to stay retired is that right? <laughs> and get through retirement. Uh, are you more afraid of running out of money or dying? Running out of money. Because if I run out of money, then I have to go back to work. Carrie is hardly alone in that sentiment, fearing running out of money more than death. In fact, a 2023 survey from Corbridge Financial found that fully two-thirds of all adults share that view. It's a figure that goes up with single people. So, um, forgive me for asking, you're single. Um, uh, how do you think that plays into sort of your retirement? I knew this question was going to come up. <laughs> it's okay. Carrie's situation is not unusual. In 2021, 25% of 40-year-olds had never been married, an historic high. Carrie's interested in being in a relationship. 
but it has to align with her views of money and retirement. Again, like I think that it's harder on a number of levels, right? Because again, like single income, right? There's not two people contributing to what that retirement looks like, but then there's also one person spending that money, right? So I can be a little bit more frugal in how I spend. And to be honest, that's always been something like the last few relationships that I have had, that's something that kind of stresses me out because I know how I spend and save my money. And it's a little bit stressful when maybe someone else that I'm in a relationship with doesn't have the same views of finance that I do. Um, because like I said, I don't want to be working for the rest of my life. I, at some point, I want to just be able to kick back and enjoy life. And while I do enjoy my life now, I am very cognizant of the money that I'm saving and what that will look like. So it, it's kind of a catch 22, you know, because again, being in relationships, that's something I look at now. Whereas like maybe in my 20s, I didn't care about that, you know, but now it's important to me. Like, I don't care what your favorite color is or what your favorite animal is. Like, do you have a 401? <laughs> are you contributing? What are your retirement plans? Right. And I don't need to know for me. I need to know that you have a plan in place so we can go and do whatever we want later in life together. So can I ask you, uh, mm -hmm. um, like when you go on a date or you are, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, I'm too old to have ever done anything online. Do you actually talk about those things early in a... Um, if it was up to me, it would be like, let's have this conversation before we even go on a date to make sure that we match up. But at the end of the day, what I've learned is anybody can say anything, right? Mm. So it's really about getting in and seeing how people, can they put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Right? You should be able to ask for their financials up front. I mean, I would right? think, you would think so, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever feel like um, uh, things, that there's so much uncertainty in the world, mm -hmm. climate change mm -hmm. and inflation and social security and... Mm -hmm. um, political polarization that it's almost futile to plan for the future? Um, no, I don't feel that way at all. I don't think it's futile to plan for the future. I think that we do the best we can and hope for the best. Um, I'd rather be planning for the future now than be in the future and not have a plan or had a plan. Um, so yeah, I think I'm just, you know, hopefully what I'm doing now is enough to get me where I want to be when I get to retirement age. Um, and if it's not, then again, I'm very fortunate to love what I do, and I'll just keep doing that. As our time together winds down, we have one final question for Carrie. Uh, I got this from one of the other interviews, so someone who actually has a vision board. Okay. What do you think, uh, if you think of yourself at age 80, what, what do you, you want to be? Um, I want to be sitting in a rocking chair with my family on a nice piece of property and just enjoying my family and being at peace with the life that I've lived. Um, yeah. And describe your family, if you would. Um, well, hopefully I'm married by then. Um, I would love to have kids, but, um, you know, just being with someone who I can enjoy life with and share the life that I do have, that I have built for myself, but eventually be able to share that with someone. And I think someplace where I can have a vegetable garden and maybe chickens, you know, kind of a little bit self-sufficient, a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. Um, and so just kind of enjoying that life, you know, after I've traveled, if I retire at 57, if I'm lucky like my dad. For all of Carrie's hard work and careful planning, it's still a challenge for a 30-year career to fund a 30-year or longer retirement. But if anyone can pull it off, it's someone as determined as Carrie is. Um, for what's worth, I'm betting that you'll be able to retire at 57. I hope. Yeah. I got, <laughs> Fingers I got, my, I got my money on you. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camillo Garzone. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, 
making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.